Chris Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Hello and welcome to this week's Nailers Natter, an audio time capsule for our future selves to look back on when we return to school. So this week we have a bumper show seeing the welcome return of the TDT team and their regular slot. So we have Michelle and Ian forensically examining the evidence base behind performance management. We also have podcast pedagogy being slightly rebranded as Lockdown Learning. Uh, And again, as ever, we seek to expand our teachers' perspectives by looking into areas of music, film and books. So this week I have Jerry Cinnamon, The Bonnie on vinyl. I also look at Trolls World Tour and Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Our main interview is Emma Turner this week, and Emma will be interviewing Neil Gilbride, or should I say soon-to-be Dr. Neil Gilbride. And Neil is a researcher, teacher, and consultant across leadership development, organisational development, coaching, psychology, and education services. This interview takes in all Neil and Emma's experiences in leadership, and it's a fascinating discussion. There was even a Peaky Blinders impression, which I cut out at the beginning, and there's also full video footage of this uh, podcast, which is quite interesting. May release that on YouTube as well. Uh, Maybe a big viral hit on YouTube. So, uh, without further ado and me rambling on, let's get into this week's Natter and start talking to teachers. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust Section, learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Hi, I'm Michelle from TDT, and we're talking today about performance management. We surveyed 250 school leaders about their school's professional environment last year and the areas that they felt needed improvement. The top answer was the creation of a genuinely non-bureaucratic and developmental performance management system. Ian, can you talk a little bit about some of the criticisms of current performance management systems? Yeah, of course. I mean, current performance management, as, as we know, it is prevalent in a lot of schools, a lot of organisations, but the research suggests that there's a few issues with it which seem to be overlooked. One criticism often levied against modern performance management practice is that it's too expansive and trying to fulfil too many and sometimes conflicting objectives. And this, this is actually quite damaging because it diminishes opportunity for real conversation and reduces the developmental and motivational impact that appraisals can have. Um, another common criticism is that it's quite time consuming and quite a bureaucratic process. Um, and most employees will reflect on performance management as an extra thing to do, that's often pushed down the priority list and conducted in a hurry with neither the line manager or the employee seeing the benefit. And this is obviously quite a negative thing because we want them to be really useful conversations within schools. But most importantly, the, probably the biggest criticism levied against it is that there's not a lot of evidence that indicates that it's a particularly effective driver of performance. The evidence actually suggests that it's neither a good indicator of current performance and it's not a good motivator for employees either. So we've got this system in place where it's actually not doing what it's supposed to do, but we're all still using this system regularly anyway. Employees often feel like appraisal is something that's done to them and they have little perceived value and relevance, um, as well as minimal control over process. And all these factors lead to, like I said before, appraisal meetings and performance management not doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is supporting employees and teachers to progress and develop. What's the research saying are some of the principles of effective performance management? So there's, there's a lot of you know, research that's come out around this area recently uh, from Colquhart and the Chartered Institute of Professional Development. But some of the basic principles is that appraisal meetings and performance management should really align with organisational goals and preferably be integrated with culture um, and quite a simplified process as well. A lot of the evidence indicates that it should really have a clear function and purpose. So some really interesting studies looked at splitting up appraisal meetings to have evaluative functions and developmental functions. The meetings with evaluative functions will be looking at things like salary, um, promotion, retention, that's recognising really good performance, that sort of thing. Whereas developmental functions is more identifying training needs, providing performance feedback, um, identifying strengths and weaknesses. So just by splitting those two meetings up, 
they can be a lot more productive because they're not trying to cover as much ground. And something that's quite important as well is feedback, particularly employee feedback immediately afterwards around the perceived fairness and process of the appraisal. Kraft and Pepe did some research and they found that a key factor in determining whether performance increases is the extent to which teacher evaluation provides meaningful feedback that actually helps the teacher. So that was one of the key factors that they found in in determining whether performance will actually increase. Okay, so what would that look like in practice? There's no one size fits all approach. Obviously, each school is unique and you need to find something which works for you. But, you know, just starting off as a couple of questions you could ask yourself about your performance management process. First of all, you could ask, what's the purpose of this appraisal process? Is it a developmental purpose? Is it more of an administrative purpose? What, what are we trying to get it to do? And that's a really important first question to ask. Just a quick sense check of your own appraisals is just asking how often they take place and what's measured as well. And and these kind of questions will give you a bit of an indication to what your performance management looks like. There's no right or wrong answer here. It's about finding something which really fits well for your context. But just a few little tips which might help schools just think slightly differently. Like I mentioned before, splitting up appraisals into developmental and administrative purposes. So a single meeting will focus on one of those purposes and not both of them. A lot of evidence suggests that review meetings should be more frequent and less formalised, giving employees a chance to sort of check in on their progress goals and see how they're getting on and obviously get any support that they need as well. And giving employees a high level of understanding and involvement in the process really allows them to to drive and shape the process and feel a part of it. Doesn't necessarily mean that your teachers have to choose their own goals, but they should have a say and they should feel like their voice is heard throughout the process. Um, And as I mentioned before, the Craft and Papay research, employee reactions to their appraisals are really crucial. So just checking in after someone's had an appraisal meeting can be really, really beneficial. Uh, It's really important to check for perceived fairness And finally, make sure appraisal conversations are genuinely two-way. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Ian. Listeners, if you're interested in finding out more about effective performance management or sharing best practice with leaders who are particularly successful in this area, learn more about the TDT network at tdtrust.org. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust section. Learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Nailers Netter, just talking to teachers. Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening. My name is Emma Turner. I'm standing in for Phil Naylor, who's very kindly asked me to record another episode of Nailers Natters. And I am absolutely delighted that I've managed to track down, pin down, strong arm into talking me, to me, the marvellous Mr. Neil Gilbride, soon to be. Dr. Neil Gilbride. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Say hi, Neil. Say hello. 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 Hi. Hello. <laughs> now, Neil was recommended to me to talk to by Professor Sam Twisterton and Dr. Emma Kell, who both know Karen Edge. Who knows you, Neil? So you come immensely highly recommended from the trinity of fabulous ladies is Sam, Karen, and Emma. No pressure. Pressure. pressure no pressure <laughs> but for people who haven't your work before and who don't know you can you give us a little bit of an outline of your career to date and how you got into teaching and what was your journey to your current role at the moment Ooh, right okay so um where to start so i suppose i'll start where i am now so i'm a lecturer in education at the university of gloucestershire um i specialize in two areas which is uh educational leadership and uh teacher development um so uh how have i got here i suppose last 15 years even though i look like i've just got out of high school uh, <laughs> um don't knock uh, it i would kill to look like when security still look at you twice when you're giving a lecture thinking, is this a student-led seminar? No, no, I'm actually the lecturer. Yep, yep, me. Me, yep. Been here four years now. Um, no, so uh, I suppose I've been in education and children's services for about 15 years. I uh, started in profound and multiple disability on play schemes and, and, and supporting children and their families. Um, and just that ended up through a mixture of widening participation work, um, 
gone blank. Uh, <laughs> widening participation, um, being uh, a, uh, recruited, I suppose is the best word at the age of 19, uh, Institute of Education Open Day by Karen, Karen Edge, um, and somehow ended up working in her research. Um, getting two years through a biomedical science degree and realizing I actually love, love, love psychology. Um, and uh, kind of started a journey for me that involved going to do my psychology and education masters whilst working as a family support worker for two years in, the, in London. Um, I joined Teach First in 2011, um, being in, after being inspired of seeing what teachers were doing on the ground and thinking, I want to, that's where I could see myself going next. I taught science for about five years um, in London and in Wiltshire and um, ended up as a lecturer, getting a job as a lecturer three, three, four years ago at Gloucestershire. Um, and it's all, it's all, all kind of gone through there. In that, in that time, I've been a school governor, a childline counsellor, um, continued my volunteer work in Prandom Multiple Disability. Um, so it's been this kind of eclectic combination of experiences in winding participation, psychology, academia, teaching, that has led me to kind of the post that I'm in now, really. Apart from nursery and early years, which you might correct me and tell me that you actually have done, I don't think there's any aspect of the sector that you haven't worked in. I actually have. <laughs> <laughs> when, I was, when I was 15, my mum is a lecturer in early childhood um, uh, in a, a college in Wolverhampton, and uh, she used to, to run a uh, play scheme in a nursery. And when I was 15, I actually went and worked on her play scheme oh, for like, children. Right, so I have done nursery. Um, I did a touch of supply as well, which um, for a couple of, for, for six months, which um, I worked anywhere and everywhere. So I worked in uh, AP unit. I worked um, in a reception. I took a morning doing reception where I read <laughs> stories and uh, the year twos and threes ended up in somehow in my room whilst reading this story. I don't know how. Um, but yeah, it's kind of been, I've been everywhere, really. There's very few people I speak to who've had that broader range of experience, right from sort of further education, higher education, AP, um, profound multiple disabilities, family support worker, you know, parental liaison. I don't think there's many people who are a better place to talk about the position of education and the picture of education at the moment. You've got such a broad and diverse experience in there, Neil. So... Anybody who's listening now will be able to find something to latch on, regardless of their background, regardless of their specialism. I reckon you're the, you're the man to talk to. <laughs> and also, oh, I know you'll Phil, certainly find something funny, that's for sure. <laughs> and I know Phil's ears would have pricked up as well as soon as he said you were a science teacher. We're listening avidly now, we're listening intently because <laughs> he is also a, a science bod. So I've got you on here because I wanted to talk about um, one of the things that you're doing, which was your research into adult ego development yeah i remember talking to you about this and thinking this was absolutely fascinating because there's loads of leadership books loads of leadership resources out there which is sort of based around the direct lived experience of leaders and there aren't as many that seem to be rooted in research, especially psycho psychology research so for anybody who's listening could you outline and i know you're currently writing eighty thousand words on this <laughs> on this yeah, sure. yeah um your research and the implications that it has for leadership development across across the sector really okay so um what i'll start with what the the ego is so the ego um is a construct it's a, an idea that jane lovinger came up with in the 1970s who's a american psychologist um and it's the idea that we have this part of our psyche that is making sense of what's going on around us um, it's sense making um, and what it does is pull in on our lived experiences, our knowledge, our intellect, our moral values, um, our personality traits um, to try and come to a, uh, an idea of what's going on around us. And it's particularly important in really wicked problems when there isn't a clear idea of what, what to do. Um, there isn't just a solution we can just impose on the situation. We need to, to think about it. Um, and all Jane Lovinger said was uh, how we go about making sense of the world, uh, so how we do that, can shift as we go through 
our life. It isn't a fixed trait. Um, it's something that can develop and grow over time. Um, and because we're psychologists, we like putting people in groups uh, um, <laughs> and stages. So what she did was develop this stage model for how this sense-making device called the ego can move through um, different stages of development as we go through our life. Um, so my research has essentially looked at, well, how do school leaders, um, because they face huge organizational complexity, a multitude of wicked problems, um, that is going to force them to have to think about situations. Quite a few of the situations they are going to face and the organizations of which they work in will not uh, correspond to imposed in, um, solutions, um, off the shelf flowcharts. They'll need to to respond and think about the situation. So I was interested in, okay, if we had head teachers in these stages of adult development, how do they respond to the to the problems that they typically face within their schools? Um, and so what I did was find head teachers in the main adult stages of development, which um, Lovinger calls the software, uh, conscientious and individualist stages. And I documented how they responded to wicked problems um, uh, within their organization. Um, and so my research is a, a documentation as to uh, how those in different adult stages correspond to the wicked problems and how they're perceived by those around them. I see, I find that absolutely fascinating. Just my personal point of view, reflecting on my journey in leadership, I was a very different leader towards the end of leadership that I was mm -hmm. when I first began my deputy headship and assistant headship. Would that be indicative of like a move through those? It can be. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of things that can affect how we correspond. I mean, what I would say the ego is is the central driver. It's the 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 part of our brain that is pulling everything in to try and create a consistent narrative. Um, and that does shift when we put into situations where we have to to rethink where actually the way we are making sense of the situation isn't allowing us to achieve a response that sticks um, or achieves what what could be conducive to success or um, we think is going to be successful and looks like it's being successful and then as time goes on actually starts to break apart. Um, what we found is what what we found in the research was as we go through these stages so as we go through later stages of development there are some key things that are different um and potentially advantageous um so as we move through these stages of development um what we saw in leaders was that the world became moved from quite a linear model so a plus b equals c um there's one solution um, to quite a complex view where there were potentially multiple situ multiple solutions, multiple potential outcomes. Um, increasingly, that, that's hard to predict. Um, so a tolerance of ambiguity. Um, there was a greater appreciation of the history of what can shape an incident, so um, a greater interest as to what could happen afterwards. Um, a broader lens of the situation itself. So moving away from the situation to the situation and its potential ripple effects. Um, how they interacted with people was very different. So the role of individuals within the incident changed um, to a more uh, mutual, developmental, collaborative um, approach. Um, and even through to the recognition of emotions. So as we move through these stages, what we saw was head teachers increasingly recognized emotion as not just a, a bit part, but actually something that could be driving the cause consequences of the incident itself. Um, so it, that's what was, I think, caught us, caught, certainly caught me off guard was the extent of which there was such breadth, um, yeah. <clears throat> which when we think about sense making as the central device, that shouldn't be so much of a shock, but it affected everything from how they viewed their organization to how they handled the problem, to how they worked with those around them and even handled um, something such as emotion. And do you think that, <laughs> those distinct stages, those phases, do you think there's any link between age and experience and, and or experience and those stages? Or this is just something that's, that's for each individual is different? I think, I think, 
I'm not so, uh, from what we can see in the literature, age, it doesn't appear to be linked so much towards. So you could have a 50-year-old in the, the self-aware stage. You yeah. could have a 28-year-old in the individualist stage because what matters is the experiences that individual's exposed to so that, and also the support. Um, development really, as with the child, um, and this is what's um, so serendipitous about your book for me um, <laughs> saying be more toddler well we also need to treat adults more like children not in in a patronizing way but in a developmental sense yeah. um you know we recognize that children need safety to develop if we do not if they are not in a safe holding environment their development as a human being will be compromised yeah. Right. We, we, we openly accept that. Yeah. It seems to be at the age of 21, we forget that. Like at the age of 21, they're done. They're, they're resistant to organizational pressure. They're resistant to external pressure. They're, they can handle vulnerability. Um, but actually, it's not the case. Like this is, and this is. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was there a report out that was all over the news a while ago about the development of the adult brain about not being fully done until it's 30 and therefore people in their early 20s are much more vulnerable to stressful situations and, and anxiety, depression, because they are, they're basically not fully formed yet. Well, we know that the frontal cortex isn't done at the age of 18. We know that take, that continues along a developmental journey. And there's a, a uh, pause a sec, I want to find this bloke's name. Um, <laughs> I just want to make sure I get it absolutely right. Emerging adulthood. Neil is currently yes, doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I was checking in my 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 one note. Um, so I mean, and that's the thing is that whilst uh, this might be relatively new in the last ten years to to neuroscience um, as an adult developmental psychology discipline, it's not news to us. Yes. Um, so um, Arnett in the US talks about this distinct phase of development which sits between. Um, being 18 and 25, which which you call emerging adulthood, which is a recognition that the the, the context the individual finds himself changed so significantly that that individual is still adapting to that. Um, that huge implications for a lot of our early career teachers, doesn't it? Absolutely. If you think about the training that they're going through, the amount of mentoring or coaching or support that they have, and obviously each individual is different. Um, but I remember reading the report while ago and thinking that is huge in terms of the ask that we have of a lot of our very young early career teachers. I know we have career changes and people teaching later in life, but the bulk of our early career teachers are in that exact phase that, that you talk about. Absolutely. And it isn't just, I mean, it's, they are particularly, I would say, vulnerable and that in that they are going through a developmental phase, but even as a third, well, you're 30 or 40 or 50, you are still developing because you're not fixed. And this is the thing with this sense making capacity is it develops throughout the lifespan. Um, and so what I'm hoping to do is by bringing, by, by showing um, that actually the, the stage of an adult, the stage of a head teacher in terms of that adult development affects how they go about leading their school is what I'm trying to say about development is the development needs to incorporate more human aspects um, in terms of we need to appreciate not just developing, whether it's an early career, senior leader, middle leader, developing their technical capacity, yeah. um, developing the, their capacity to do the job, but their capacity as a human being in terms of developing them as a well-rounded human will naturally infiltrate and I will argue actually underpin mm. their capacity as either a technician or a manager or as a leader so it's bringing the human aspect into development and asking those those questions as to how do we develop this individual as a human being as opposed to their just a technical competence or their um, managerial competence or knowledge or skills whatever label you want to use there. I'm fascinated as well by the fact that you say it's not necessarily linked to age, which is hugely, hugely um, encouraging for those people to take on leadership roles early on in their career, who sometimes face, not prejudice, but a kind of a pushback, as in you haven't got enough experience or you know, you, you're, you've not done it for long enough yet, you can't possibly move 
through the ranks kind of thing. Um, and I get a lot of people contacting me and saying, well, I've only got this much amount of years of experience. Or I've only, you know, I keep being told I need to do this, I need to do that. What you're saying is actually, it's not how much experience you've had, it's that combination of that technical knowledge and then which stage of adult ego development you're at, which then would kind of define how well you deal with those rookie problems. Is that, is that right or not? I, I think so. I mean, um, what I'd say is it's about... I'm trying to get my words right here. I would say that there is a huge range of factors that go into whether or not a leader is ready to take on a particular context. By linking to adult development, I'm saying a few things. One, that it isn't, you could, it isn't just about demographic variable, that it isn't just about age, because age does not equate to experience. You could have someone who's done the same thing for 20 years uh, on repeat. You know, is that a person with bags full of experience? Lots of experience doing the same thing, but probably not a, a, not a wide variety of experience. Could be a specialist, but again, it's a special, who's a specialist? Yeah. Is someone a specialist who's actually gone out and experienced their craft in a range of different situations and contexts and demands? Um, so I suppose it's, it's highlighting that age is not the only that age yeah okay you go through life as you get older you're more likely to have broad range of experience but that might not necessarily be the case you might be relatively young and still have had a broad range of experiences um, which if in a supportive environment could advance an individual into later stages of development um, the other thing that I'm bringing in though is that you could have individuals in these beautifully later stages of development but if they are not in a safe context they will not be able to operate in yeah. those advanced ways. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what I suppose the, the powerful link here is if, um, and it obviously needs further research, but if uh, these ways of working, such as being able to appreciate wicked problems, wider degree of complexity, bringing individuals on as mutual collaborators within problems, recognizing emotions within, within context and situations more, more profoundly, um, and we're linking that to their stage of adult development that says one we need to be thinking about that in terms of their development as a practitioner um, and how we shape professional development courses two it means we really need to rethink what we mean by well-being and what we mean um, is opposed to just being a protective factor to stop people getting ill actually if we want people to 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 operate at their best at work in terms of their most advanced stage of adult development um, we need to have safe secure holding environments for them to be able to bring their best selves to work yeah. because what we do know is that when individuals like children are placed under situations of duress and that is individually related um, what is stressful for one is not stressful for another what is pressure for one is not pressure for another but if we put individuals under those those um the situations what happens they regress they move to those earlier stages where instead of collaborating they maybe become more fixed into their own internal position rather than thinking about the broader picture they think about what's immediately in front of them and if we think about that in terms of a uh, purely a pragmatic our own experience we can probably identify that within ourselves we know that when we are stressed we know that when we are under pressure our our thinking our way of making sense becomes compromised we can feel it we, we reflect back and go oh hold on i would have made a completely different decision if actually i wasn't under the cosh then yeah. um, and that is because our ego our sense making device becomes compromised with our external environment if you put pressure in the external environment it forces us to regress down and so what I'm, i suppose i'm saying is that you can develop individuals to these later stages as much as you like if you don't also provide the safe holding environment for those individuals to excel it's it's a it's it, it won't work you won't get individuals doing that genuine collaboration yeah. that wider complexity wicked problem management it's got huge implications for cpd for mentoring for being for design of support for head teachers and leaders and and also about having a sort of proactive approach to well-being rather than a reactionary sticking plaster type yeah 
And it's about and it's about tweaking, I suppose. That's the thing. It doesn't. I don't <laughs> I think any of it... you said tweaking. I heard twerking. <laughs> tweaking, tweaking. Not, definitely not twerking. Definitely not twerking. <laughs> but it is like, it, I think there's there's so much of what we do already that with tweaks could turn something that is good or develops the technical competence and knowledge-based competence, their ability to do something in the context, to actually promoting their wider adult development. So for example, one that I've talked about recently is knowledge. You know, knowledge is powerful. You know, there are certain theories and concepts which you introduce people to and it blows their minds. One, for example, complexity theory. When people get their heads around complexity theory, it gives them a template for actually seeing the problem in front of them in a completely different way that to me when thought about from an adult development perspective including some reflection in that sort of activity and putting it in a kind of a pedagogical package or agogical package um can mean that that person's not just becoming more knowledgeable in how a system works but that knowledge then facilitates them seeing the world in a different way which therefore brings on their sense making i.e their adult development coaching if we're thinking about coaching from an adult development perspective, everyone, most people receive coaching. They'll receive some form of professional development that might be mentoring or coaching. Um, if we take an incident that uh, and, and put an adult development lens on it, it may be that that person who is um, struggling to collaborate with their colleagues isn't that they don't know how to do it. It's that actually they're at a stage of development that means they don't make sense of the world through other people very easily so what can we do instead of saying go collaborate actually how can we structure that activity so they incorporate more collaboration in their work which encourages them to reflect not just on how they work but how they make sense of the situation in the first place so, so much more research informed nuance in cpd design for yes have you ever done yes. ed? say again have you ever spoken at research ed no Mr. Tom Bennett, Mr. Bill Naylor, Stricko, sign this fella up because he knows his onions. Oh my gosh. That's a direct instruction to the, to the, to the direct instruction to Mr. Bennett, Mr. Naylor, my mate Stricko to sign you up for a research ed slot. Fabulous. They can fight amongst themselves about who has you to be Anyway, let's. Um, you were the first person in your family to go to university, were you not, Mr. Gilbride? Oh, yes. Me too. Snap. Yay. Yay. <laughs> um, and there, there is a kind of a weird mix of pride, but also nervousness when you're the first one to go. Um, yeah. I know that on your first day, you said that you were reminded of that and you were told something which then spurred you on to another project that, you, that you've been, been involved in. So conversation and then your WP project. Sure I mean I've been very lucky throughout my career to run into people like Karen Edge and the person I'm going to talk about now is Kenton Lewis because they've just been instrumental. Um, I remember on my first day of uni um, there was a freshers fair and there was a store with a squidgy brain on it and I wanted the squidgy brain um, and so uh, I asked for the squidgy brain and this individual called Kenton um, uh, who was head of widening participation at St George's, uh, said, uh, yes, if I can tell you about widening participation. And we started talking about it because I didn't know what widening participation was. Um, I didn't know being first in family was particularly special uh, or unique or, or uh, I don't know, um, different. Uh, I didn't know that being from the postcode I was from particularly had a, a particular impact on my uh, chance of getting to university didn't know the fact I had a disability as well um, and so when we were talking a bit about my background he was like whoa okay right so you going to university then um, quite a unique achievement and I'm sitting there going no no because my parents had never asked you know they just always said what uni are you going to go to not are you mm. you know like it was just a con and the the teachers I had around me it was the same what university not are you um and that thing was it meant that when i went to university <laughs> it was never <laughs> really a question that i was gonna go like I was, yeah. I was i was almost told from from the subliminal messaging um and so from and and that's and then i i, I didn't know what a private school was and he was explaining what a private school was and i was sitting there and i was just getting more and more angry because i just thought this i can't believe like 
really what no and so you couldn't get me out of the widening participation office of georgia's for the first two years really um going out to do presentations <laughs> schools and working on different projects they were working on and it's just always I suppose it was the, the, the drop the seed for Teach First mm -hmm. it really like when I saw the Teach First advert that just sung because of that background that just was there um, and a couple of years ago we started talking about um, a director rate so universities are now under increasing pressure to show direct attainment raising in their one participation so not just so going beyond um uh, aspiration raising and um uh kind of profile raising at the university but actually trying to make a difference to the result they achieve so they stand a better chance um and so we created this project um which is called science stars which provided which provides continues to provide 30 hours of free gcc tuition um to students who meet the widening participation criteria often pupil premium being one of them um to uh, one of our local schools to st george's um and so they essentially get uh, a three to one, like a medical student that we've trained um, uh, to, to deliver like GCC intervention um, and uh, give them the curriculum materials as well, um, which are, so my job was to kind of design the curriculum materials, train the mentors. Um, and the impact report, which Impact Ed did, uh, showed a, a grades difference um, in achievement compared to the in-house control we had at the school, which we're running it again this year. It's just really exciting. It's really exciting wow. to, to see. And is this a so, national thing? or a lo a local? Very local, very local at St. George's. So St. George's is a medical school based in Tooting. Um, yeah. So it's quite small scale at the moment. Um, but, you know, to be able to, to affect change in that way and to students who, you know, could have, you know, as we've, have increased their chance of going to university as a result of one grade um, can make a, a, a big difference. So it was this, yeah, I mean, it's really exciting to be able to do projects like that on the side, as it were. Um, just, just a little thing on the side. <laughs> That's some people's life's work, Mr. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, just unlock it. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I've just been very lucky that I've been trusted with the opportunity and, you know, um, you know, after all those years, St. George has kept in touch and I kept in touch with them. Um, and I think it just, the opportunity came up to try and do something together and it did and still working together on it and, you know, looking forward to see what the results look like this year. Um, but uh, no, we're very lucky because the tutors we get are just amazing. They're absolutely fabulous. The amount of times I've tried to convince them into teacher training. Give them <laughs> I don't want to do medicine. Come, <laughs> come, come to Gloucestershire and I'll teach you how to do this as a, as a career. work to individual subject specialisms but is there anything from your work or your experience which would suggest that cross-discipline study has does have advantage i'm just playing devil's advocate here really yeah yeah of course has i think advantages i think i think I only so my own personal background is I was probably one of 20 a handful of people in the country to do history and chemistry at a level um, so I've always mixed the the the, the arts and the sciences I did history English chemistry, equations biology. with a quill <laughs> 
I'll tell you what, they always put the exams on the same day. So you always put chemistry and history because no one ever did them together. Except so me. So yours in a cupboard or something? Or something like, it was this, this <laughs> like, it was exhausting. Like this, this actually having to switch between, you know, 30 short answer questions to one yeah. long answer. Just the, the kind of uh, being able Shift. to communicate in two different ways blew, your, yeah. blew my mind a bit. Um, I think though, what, as with anything, it's about balance. <laughs> I always say this, it's like, it's typical academics answer. It depends. Um, <laughs> I think what allowed me to apply the principles of biology to my later studies in child psychology, what during my master's program and my later study in adult development as a broader philosophical view is because I was allowed to develop expertise in it first. Yeah. And so there is something about trying to cross disciplines as a novice I'm so glad to, <laughs> um, as opposed to trying to cross disciplines when when you have expertise yeah. in both um, it's almost trying not to do fusion until you know the two disciplines really well you can't you, do fusion until you can make an omelette basically you can't do fusion until you do an omelette until you can really make an yes. omelette well yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's like those people who go on MasterChef and they can make like scallops and black pudding and then they say, right, now just fillet a fish or make an and they're like, uh? Yeah, exactly. They, they're doing this kind of weird fusion thing. I can make you a, you know, a Bavarian curry, but, mm. <laughs> but I can't actually boil an egg, basically. So, well, I used to see this as a science teacher all the time where, um, you know, I was a, and I still am, and I advocate it in my, the teacher training program that I, I, I have the joy of being involved in at, at Gloucestershire. Um, is literacy and numeracy is absolutely fundamental and core to the the training of, of the scientist or the, the delivery of science. And also, science itself can provide a beautiful vehicle for developing literacy and numeracy skills that otherwise might not be able to be developed in the 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 respective classrooms it's kind of provides an escape it's uh, an alternative context um however you could see them developing their expertise in english and you gather english book and look and see this beautiful writing and then they'd go into the science classroom and they'd fall through the floor mm -hmm. as soon as they had to master the expertise of another subject yeah. they become so engrossed in that subject that the rules and basic principles that they'd learned in one wouldn't transport over to the other and that's because they hadn't developed fluent expertise in both yet yeah. because they had not developed their fluent expertise in science they were so focused you could just see their frontal cortex like rammed with science 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 trying to get their head around some really difficult concepts um because that wasn't fluent yet the ability to then bring their other expertise across to bring the two together, i.e. Yeah. to use their expressive English vocabulary, their ability to construct an argument from history um, into the science domain was compromised because they hadn't developed fluency yeah. and expertise in the domain where they needed to apply it. Um, and so what that showed me and what I kind of, uh, I think when it comes to cross-discipline um, work is the importance of developing expertise in both separately and separately and then using those cross opportunities to to build those skills in but recognizing that th there needs to be a fluency first there needs you can't develop individual fluency through working cross discipline i wish you, phil had video now because i might air punch in a minute <laughs> 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 i have been saying this for so long this is music to my ears mr gilbride you don't need me you just keep <laughs> in the back i'll just be in the back going yep yeah yep, what, 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 what she said what she said <laughs> no, what she said it's so interesting because from working in primary obviously as a primary you teach all the subjects in the class and the temptation is to lump them together in these kind of homogenous things and actually you end up teaching nothing well because they don't know the individual characteristics of what, how a geographer thinks and expresses themselves compared to an artist compared to a scientist and until you actually understand the individual nuances of and the discipline of each subject you can't fuse them it just becomes this yeah. crazy mishmash and it's a really skilled primary practitioner that can blend two separate subjects but lumping things together under this guise of topic I don't think it necessarily does anybody any favours, either the learner or the teacher, because 
it becomes a little bit muddied. So I'm, I'm so glad that, that, that all your research sits behind that. As well. I think I think I think you see it as, as I know as in my experience as having done run you know postgraduate programs now and undergraduate. You can see I mean on the the masters program I you know we study leadership and we look at that through the lens of psychology and organizations but until they have developed their fluency you know and we do it quite concretely you know this is when we're studying leadership we're looking at leadership now we're not looking at psychology now we're looking at leadership now we're going to look at leadership that's all we're going to look at once we've developed yeah. our expertise and we're going to put press pause we're going to now look at psychology we're going to look at different areas of psychology right now we've developed the expertise in both right now let's bring them together concretely in a very safe kind of almost case study method that allows us to bring these two together but even then you know at master's level we're still having to have really quite discreetly to begin with we have to develop that at master's level we're developing mm -hmm. you know we recognize how challenging that is to think in such an interdisciplinary cross-disciplinary way um and so it, it and that's at master's level we recognize that as a hard skill for 11 level seven experienced student postgraduate yeah. student to develop um and so we do that within our curriculums there i it 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 somewhat i don't want to say baffle me but i, I think we underappreciate when i use that and i look at that experience as a lens i then look back and think about 11 year old and thinking oh my stars okay right <laughs> or, a we think, or a seven year old seven exactly or a seven year old you know how really difficult that is and it's a, i suppose it comes back to my own leadership research which is essentially things are far far harder when we look at things through a developmental lens we begin to appreciate really how hard something actually is mm. like like the, like and that's the power of developmental psychology it kind of it doesn't put a cap on saying you know oh it's so difficult therefore it's impossible it's actually saying no actually a lot of the things we ask people to do if we're not using a developmental lens we totally underappreciate how hard they actually are yeah give us a break, yeah. you know? So that collaboration piece, which is within the individualist stage of adult development, about 10% of the adult population will be individualists, um, according to Lanning's work. Um, so, and that at that stage is when there's genuine mutual collaboration, right? It doesn't occur before that. Being able to see the world around you as a mutual collaborative space, that goes to show how, how hard it is to do yeah. that to work in that way it is really really hard yet we expect teachers leaders middle leaders senior leaders pretty much everyone to collaborate just go collaborate we even assume it's the best way of working for most people but actually it's something that has to be developed into because it's really really hard and i suppose that's the one thing that of the research of anything that i'm trying to say you know aside from just the cpd stuff or indeed my own teaching whether it's been teaching and how i've designed the ma the pgce whether it's my research i suppose all i'm trying to say with the kind of golden thread through it is a lot of these things that we just take for granted, whether it's collaboration, recognizing emotion, handling the sort of problems in our day to day life, they are far, far, far harder than we give credit for. So we need the spaces to develop people within them. We need the procedures and protocols and the development to think about it. We also just need to, to appreciate the journey of a developing adult and actually go, whoa, this is really hard. Let's take our time. Yeah. take our time to develop someone into this let's provide them the space to develop them into it rather than just expecting and demanding an adult to be at the age of 18 this collaborative complex viewing handle all this situations person just expect it uh, it just doesn't yeah <laughs> in freshers week <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in freshers week you've left home right get on with it now collaborate <laughs> now collaborate what? Effectively, eh? And then it goes back to you. values here. I just, <laughs> I just want the squishy brain. <laughs> yeah, I just want the squishy brain. <laughs> You've mentioned tons of research today. You're, you're massively involved in research within all of your roles and, and have been throughout your career. And loads of schools are trying to be more research informed. So, so what would be your top tips then for, for navigating the world of educational research, which is your spiritual home? And or, or kind of how should the school get started? How should the school get started? I think. <laughs> I've stumped you now. 
<laughs> no, I'm just trying to think. I'm trying. I'm. Of course, I have to say first of all, you know, get be like go do an MA. But I'm going to say that because I, you know, like I'm involved in masters programs. So you know, um, I am going to say that of course. But there is. How does going to school get started? I think the first step is having is asking: Do we have a genuinely inquisitive staff base? You know, um, it's so quick how research informed, led, whatever we want to kind of give that label to, um, can very quickly become just another way of prescription or another way of yeah. of forcing people to do things differently That's because it's what the research says therefore we must do it, it is yes, exactly. drop what you were doing stop it now and do it like this <laughs> exactly and and usually the way that i wanted you to do it in the first place but i've now collected <laughs> some evidence behind you uh now, behind what i wanted that, to say all the things that now match my argument that i've sourced <laughs> Exactly. And so then it's that kind of the first step is what adults, what, what adults do I have in, and it, what a surprise, developmental psychologist saying this, um, that specializes in adult development. Hey, what adults do I have here? You know, where are they at in terms of their developmental journey? Are they open? Are we ready to be open to inqu inquisition? Are we ready to really challenge the fundamentals of what we do? Um, are we ready to really geek out on this? You know, do we have, and also do we have the structures that allow people to do this properly, to engage in this work um, and to ask the questions that need to be asked and that those questions going up the hierarchy and down the hierarchy. You know, there's so many fundamental questions such as that, that need to occur before the question of, it's more, are we ready to mm -hmm. embrace this sort of way of working because it's going to lead to questions across the chain and you know there will be ambiguity at some point because research doesn't create clear-cut black and white answers it provides guidance because these problems are wicked problems they very rarely can you just transpose a solution so are we comfortable with that are, do we have adults that are comfortable with that is our leadership comfortable with that are we viewing our system in a way that would allow us to be comfortable and allow for information to move through the organization um, and say so that really is the first starting point. All the others have been documented, you know, making sure you have people that are genuinely interested in these areas of inquiry, building up knowledge capacity through different, you know, postgraduate study does encourage this level of expertise to be developed. Um, that's why I believe passionately in them. It's why I run them. Or well, not run them, but sorry, I'll need to, because I don't run it. Can I say that again? <laughs> Can I say that? Hey, whatever you like. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, you know, it's why I'm in. It's why I'm so involved with with masters level study because um, I'm believing it passionately because it does advance individuals to thinking about not just the how, the what, but the why, and training individuals to think about that why, um, and asking the right questions or the appropriate questions or the kind of deeper questions. Um, all that's been documented, we know that. I think what we don't focus on is those initial questions of, are we ready for this? Do we have the adults in place? Do we have the systems and structures in place that would allow this to really take off and not just be another form of delegation? That this would is just be in fascinating because I genuinely thought you would say, visit this site and then read that journal and then read this and then read that. And actually this is a brilliant, brilliant, different starting point for schools to actually think, yes, there's research out there, are we ready for the research to start impacting on our thinking and on our work because in the rush to find the research i think people may not be looking at the the people they've got to deal with the research back in school and that's an absolutely fascinating different take on it it's not the research that's going to change the school it's the people in the school that are going to change the school so if you haven't got the people in the right place it doesn't matter how much research you throw at them or or have expose them to or encourage them to read if they're not in the right mindset and the right space then nothing's going to change so that's an absolutely fascinating different take on the use of research thank you Mr. Bride. thank you <laughs> Um, and that we're running out of time. It feels really keen to keep it to dog walk length. So there's, um, and if we don't wrap up soon, there's going to be some very well exercised dogs. Some <laughs> <laughs> very thin dogs. Um, I'm going to finish with what's been your career highlight? Obviously, your very first podcast. <laughs> aside, 
Oh. <laughs> what has been your career highlight? God, he's gone quiet. No, 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 I know, I know. My gosh, everyone's going to, who knows me, is going to be surprised. Karen's going to be like, oh my gosh, he's quiet. Sam's going to be like, I know, this is why we wanted Emma to talk to him so he could, you know, talk him out. He won't say anything for two weeks. Go on with his PhD. Uh, <laughs> um, highlight of my career. The thing is, like, I keep, I, when I come back to all the things that have, have take, uh, that have driven me in what I do, it comes back to it, developing developing people like whether it's been as a teacher whether it's been as a lecturer and it's one of the best parts of being a lecturer is actually seeing people transform on your programs from either no someone never been in front of a classroom before someone who's absolutely killing it and in, in in front of their GCC science class whether it's a, a master student who comes in and they they don't know what they're thinking or they're, they're shy about their voice and they come in they after two years they feel so much stronger and they're sharing their views of the world um, or whether it's been as a teacher and um, probably the highlight of my career when I realized that this was the, the, my, my drug, as it were, um, <laughs> the thing that I love most about anything that I do um, was when it was in my first year of Teach First and it was teaching in London and there was a student who used to come into my classroom every other, I used to teach them all on a triple lesson on a Monday and it was lunchtime was in the middle and the student would come in and uh, would 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 just sit in the back of the classroom like during lunchtime whilst I was madly preparing the lesson and revising the physics I barely knew um, <laughs> um, no you had robust disciplinary knowledge you don't, don't... Yeah, I did I did yes I did of physics totally of physics 100% <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, like they, they, the conversation was never particularly flowing. Like, it, it, I, you know, I actually thought this student didn't really like me very much. I thought they just needed a comfy place to crash during lunchtime. Um, and I'd just move in and out and ask, you know, if they wanted to talk about anything and not really, or sometimes a little. And at the end of the, the year, they left a card on my, my desk. And uh, it, it, I still have that card because that card was, thank you for everything you've done. You made me feel safe. And oh. I suppose what caught me off guard there was I, I was impacting and affecting this young person without even knowing I was doing anything like you know I wasn't giving inspirational coach Carter type speeches um, yeah. or rousing them into to, to action um, just doing the kind of the, I suppose what I thought was the basics like you know providing a safe environment showing interest in what they were doing um, not more than that and that remember, and I've still got that card. In fact, I carry that card in pretty much every interview, um, <laughs> uh, 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 or kind of when I need a, a, a boost um, because it is just, yeah, it's a, a reminder of we can be impacting and not even knowing we're doing it, and encouraging people to grow and develop without even just doing the smallest of, of things. So, yeah, that's probably been my my career highlight. Oh, what a beautiful one to end on, Mister Gold. <laughs> It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and, and I could talk to you all day, to be perfectly honest, because every, every single thing you've said has got about 14 podcasts behind it, I think. So I'm really hopeful that, that Phil has you back because like that child in your class, I could just, just being around you and listening to you has been an absolute treat. So thank you so much for your, for your time. And once again, in case they missed it in the middle, Strecko. Mr. Bennett, and <laughs> book this man <laughs> for some research ed stuff because he knows his stuff and, and would be an absolute joy for school leaders to listen to. So thank you so much, Neil. I could talk to you as I say all day. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm hoping to goodness this tech works and we've recorded this and I've not lost the whole damn thing. <laughs> it's saying recording. I promise I've looked, it says recording. I mean <laughs> I haven't been staring at the button going, oh my gosh, it's recording. Don't say that. <laughs> so thank you so much. Good luck thank with the rest you. of your doctorate. You will absolutely smash it, no doubt. How many more words of the 80,000 you've got to do? Oh, this is the bit where it's about refining. Like there is a document with 80,000 odd words in. Just press send. If my external is listening, it's 75,000, um, <laughs> which I don't know. I, I'm sure most of it is pretty good. Um, I just, it's, it's the other parts that maybe aren't so good that now need tweaking. Um, 
you've written a book you know what it's like when you you, you get to that point where you've written the words now it's is this is this any good um so I, no, I didn't i didn't read mine back i literally wrote it and pressed send i didn't read any of it back to me i just opened right. a Word document wrote the whole thing didn't read anything back to me i pressed send that was the first time i read it back to myself was when when it came back as a book <laughs> That's talent. That is mad skills. That is skills I do not have. I do not have these skills. It's called luck. It's called luck. Oh no, it's not luck. It's talent. Luck and fury. Refined <laughs> talent and fury, no doubt. But yeah, most certainly. Fury on defending it. But thank you so much for your time. I'm going to have to go because I've got to go and do the school run with my lovely two eldest children. So Fabulous. Time. And I'll speak to you. And thank you so much on behalf of all the Nailers Matters listeners. It's been a treat. Thank you, Mr. Bride. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy. Listening to teachers. Netter, just talking to teachers. So into the lockdown learning section this week. And in this week's section, we have music from Jerry Cinnamon. So Jerry Cinnamon releases his second album during lockdown. And not a wise idea, you may think, but as he communicated on its release, he didn't want to let the fans down. And this is typical of a man who has sold out 50,000-seater stadium without any real support from the media. So even if he could go out and talk to anybody, then he probably wouldn't. And this huge loyal fan base have been awaiting the album, sharing snippets of lyrics online and further enhancing his word of mouth appeal. So what about this difficult second album? Well, The Bonnie is anything but difficult. Cinnamon sticks to the blueprint that made erratic cinematic so huge. So it's mostly Jerry and his acoustic guitar with occasionally some basic drumming. He also occasionally brings in the full band, for example, in Where We Are Going, but none of the album relies on any production trickery or any repeated listening, which, believe you me, I have been doing over the last week or so, just enhances the experience. So the songs may seem straightforward, and on first listen, the guitar patterns sound relatively easy, but as Child One, a much, much better guitarist than his father, um will attest to these are quite tricky, particularly in canter, um, for example, but the directness of the rhythms really, really hit you. So the lyrics, um, to me, don't really move things on from Erratic Cinematic, which had some biting uh, observations in the lyrics. And you, but you can imagine the lyrics of Canter being uh, sung at stadium. I won't repeat these for you listeners now, especially as this is something that you can listen to with children and a family podcast, but um, yeah... I can imagine that being sung at top of people's voices at stadiums as and when they reopen. But I do feel that there's much more to come from the lyrical genius that is Jerry Cinnamon. So a great album, very much like the first one, definitely worth purchasing either by vinyl or uh, on streaming services. So The Bonnie by Jerry Cinnamon is out on vinyl and is available on Amazon. So into film. And this week we're looking at Trolls World Tour. So before we start the reviews, um, an insight into the new world. So um, as many this film and many other films are now on streaming services, as obviously cinemas are closed, we here in the Nailer household did a few things to recreate the cinema experience. So if you're a regular listener to Nailers Natter, you will know that I am a dedicated member of the Church of Wittertainment and a massive fan of Kermod and Mayo. So I got these ideas from their show uh, last Friday. So firstly, and the most important thing in some ways, is that I paid for the stream. You might well say, oh, well, all well for you, and I understand people are finding things difficult at the moment. But the reason that I'm raising this is that these films are available on alternative streaming streaming services should I say um, which I don't want to get into the ins and outs of but if you are able to pay for this then it is helping um, artists and people that are working on films who will equally be struggling at the moment probably not James Corden but uh, we should continue to support cinema where we can and secondly we recreated the cinema experience from um, drawing a poster for the lobby or the hall for the film, um, through to Child 2 stamping our tickets with a hole punch, and Child 1 um, playing the usher and directing us to our seats on the sofa. 
We also had what we call cold compliant snacks, which really don't matter in the current circumstances, but hey, why change the habit of a lifetime? So let's get into the film itself. Well, um, if you need a little recap on Trolls history, I'll give bring you slightly up to date. Those of you with younger children or those of you just a fan will know this already. But in Trolls, the first movie, uh, the Happy Trolls were terrorised by the carnivorous Bergens who were going around trying to eat them. And in this one, um, the Trolls are at war. Um, they've split into tribes. So they've got, and if I get this right, we've got pop, country, funk, techno, classical and rock. And Queen Barb has decided that what she will do is to invade all the lands, silence all the music and steal their strings and unite them all under one troll nation of rock. This, of course, is not to the liking of Pop Queen Poppy, who just wants everyone to get along, get along and give everyone a hug. So there's a stellar cast um, in this in this movie. We have George Clinton, Ozzy Osbourne, Justin Timberlake, Anna Kendrick, and of course the aforementioned James Corden. So in films like this, there tend to be a few crumbs for parents because if it was a cinema release, you have to literally sit through this. So there's a few gags around smooth jazz and yodeling, which um, parents will enjoy. But for me, it was the perfect film to tidy up to. So the cinema experience for me didn't last long as I took this welcome opportunity for an oasis of calm in the relative chaos of homeschooling and remote working to catch up on emails and to bleach everything within sight. So um, I couldn't do, I couldn't get into much of the film, but the kids seemed to love it. Even the 11 year old watched most of it. And, you know, you might find yourself some time in the busy day to get on with something while it's on. So Trolls World Tour is available across all streaming services and it's available now. So finally, into books. And this week I have forgone my obsession with dystopian novels to follow, follow my literary journey from Orwell to an author who was a huge influence on him, namely Charles Dickens. And I'm ashamed to admit that apart from A Christmas Carol, I have never read any Dickens, but was prompted by Orwell's essay about Charles Dickens and the recent BBC documentary hosted by Armando Iannucci. Um, so I dived in. Um, I've become a bit of an avid reader on the Kindle and this book flows rather e more easily than I had expected. Um, I'm as far as the golden thread so far, but I'm enjoying it and I'm returning each night so I will keep you informed in future episodes. The novel tells the story of the French Dr Manette, his 18-month imprisonment in the Bastille in Paris and his release to live in London with his daughter Lucy, who he had never met. As I said, I will keep you informed on my progress during next week's show. So A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens is available in the Amazon Kindle shop now. Okay, lastly, moving into these shameless plugs. And as we've already mentioned a few times, there aren't many things to plug in terms of events, but there is a lot of online content to talk about. So I'll just plug a couple of those if I may. And the first plug is for all the amazing online content being created by the team at the Teacher Development Trust. And Michelle earlier on signposted you to where you can find that on TDT, tdtrusteven.org. And these webinars are excellent. And as I record this, last night's with Thomas Guskey was an absolute great success. And he's a great speaker and a fantastic, fantastic man as well. So if you get a chance to have a look at that, then please do check that out. There's also the incredible Research Ed Home, which uh, will be available on YouTube as the 500 places went immediately. And there are also many excellent podcasts out there and links will be on the show notes for those. So all that remains to say, as usual, is stay safe, stay at home, and we'll see you next week on Nailers Natter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. 